Hello and welcome to the Good Friends of Jackson Elias, the regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Albert. And I'm Matt Sanderson. And today we're looking at occupations in Call of Cthulhu. Before we get into all that good stuff, however, what is going on? I believe people have been playing games. Is this true? Just a few. There were quite a lot of games going on a few weeks ago at the time of recording because our wonderful listeners organised another convention. What used to be called JaxCon has now been rebranded a weekend with good friends. And yes, it happened over the course of the 14th to the 18th of January. I'm trying to remember how many games there were. It was something like 100 over the course of those few days. Yeah, it was in triple figures, I remember that. You were involved with that as well, weren't you, Matt? Yeah, although not to the same extent as some other people I can think of here. Like, I only ran three games, whereas how many did you attempt in the end? I put myself down to run eight, but I had to delay the last two because I ended up having an arthritis flare-up. We should put a long weekend with good friends in there because it really wasn't just the Saturday and Sunday. It was like the <laughs> Thursday through Sunday. But yeah, it was was a lot of fun. And getting to uh, torment various players, always a good laugh. And it really was fantastically organised. I really want to thank three core people who did almost all the work. And that was Benza, Chris and Martin, who between them answered all the requests from both the players and the GMs, and even went to the extent of writing custom software at the back end to handle it all. I popped into the staff room every now and then just to sort of see if there was anything I could help with in terms of promotion and stuff like that. And the amount of work that those three in particular, there were other volunteers, and thank you to everyone who helped out, but those three did the core of all the work, and it was just breathtaking. So thank you all very much. And Scott, you've been playing with How We Roll. Yes, I tend to GM a lot of stuff for them, but every now and then I actually get to play as well. And Craig from Red Moon Roleplaying once again has been running Cult for us. And it's a bit different from the last couple of times he has, because previously he's run published scenarios for Cult. But this time we're playing it much more as it's intended to be run, in that we've created characters with all sorts of hooks and dark secrets and so on, and he's weaving a scenario around all that. I'm having a lot of fun with that so far. We've only played one session, and it's going to be going out on the How We Roll Patreon feed initially. I think Joe said that he might edit it up and release it generally much later on down the line. Yeah, it's been absolutely fantastic. And in fact, I think I may end up referencing one aspect of that later on in this episode. Curiouser and curiouser. Well, let's move on to our main topic, occupations in Call of Cthulhu. When you're creating a Call of Cthulhu investigator, one of the key things about that character is their occupation. It defines them probably more than any other single aspect. So how do these things work? How do they shape the characters? How do we use them in our games? And how do we mess around with them and change them or create our own? First of all, What role, really, do occupations serve in the game? Are they basically just D&D character classes, Paul? I'd say they're not. I'd say they're a long way from D&D character classes because, you know, I'd contest your opening statement that they... I'm not quite sure how you worded it, but how much they define the character because I think often... Okay, let's compare it. D&D, certainly in the iteration we have now race is quite a factor as well i think they're looking at downgrading that Mm. but let's put the fact i'm a dwarf or an elf to one side because those fill a niche as well let's say i'm a fighter or i'm a wizard or i'm a cleric that really informs what i am and how i play the game and the niches that i sort of fill yeah i can be very different types of cleric but i'm a cleric i'm a healer i deal with faith i deal with that type of magic so it really defines my character Whereas in Call of Cthulhu, okay, let's say I choose to be an accountant or I choose to be, I don't know, an antiquarian to pick like stereotypical ones. Often that doesn't have necessarily have that much impact on how I play the character because I'm not going into the accountancy office. I'm 
going and investigating some ichor in somebody's cellar. I don't know. I'm not going to be filling out spreadsheets. You're missing the most important and exciting thing in an accountant's life. Yeah, that's the real horror, right? <laughs> not getting to do spreadsheets. <laughs> so, I mean, I guess if I choose a profession like ex-policeman or something like that, where that's going to inform my skills pretty heavily... But I'm probably still not going to be playing the role of a, a police officer in the game, probably. Yeah, so I question, you know, actually, that's a starting point that informs my kind of life experience. But how much does that inform the role I take in the game? That's interesting. I think it's probably something we'll come back to later in the episode. But this idea that the character's job isn't something that lies at the core of what happens during the game. Because if you think about the kinds of fiction, horror fiction of films and so on, that Call of Cthulhu emulates at times, very often the character's profession does come heavily into it. I mean, particularly if they're in something like law enforcement or private investigator. But generally, I mean, say if you had a character who was a mortician, you'd expect that their relationship with the dead, that their work, that being around dead people would feature very, very heavily in that horror film. If you had a character in a horror film who was a mortician, and then the whole thing was like a cabin in the woods scenario, and you never saw a coffin in it, you'd wonder what the hell the point of them being a mortician was. I was thinking more phantasm, thinking of the tall man. I mean, Matt, what was your character in Tatters of the King, right? Can you remember what profession your character was? Honestly, no. That's interesting in itself, I guess. I was going to mm. discuss how they filled the role, but what about masks? The only one I can remember for sure how he started, because it was a hell of a kind of journey through the whole thing, was Walker in the Wastes, right. because I started off being an artist in that. Oh, really? That's so conducive for the rest of that campaign. If you think about playing through the published campaigns... Yes. Okay, Scott, you might start as a mortician and you're working in, you know, Boston in a mortician's, what do they call it? <laughs> a morgue. Mortuary. You know, you would be going in doing your day job. But then once you get involved with the investigation, if we're talking about masks or some other big campaign, it kind of compels you to leave your day job. Mm -hmm. Whereas when you're talking about a TV show or a film maybe the morgue would be one of the locations in the tv show maybe so we cut to the mortician in the morgue quite often and see bodies creeping around or whatever that's one thing actually we've addressed recently because we're playing the pulp cthulhu campaign a cold fire within with into the darkness at the moment our great keeper zane fleming said that that's one of the things he wanted to address with occupations is because there is going to be a point in that campaign where you are going to be leaving hometown for quite a large extended period and you've got to have a credit rating or at least degree of resources and a job that would accommodate that so otherwise it just won't be realistic but also to fit in with the investigator group that everyone's or in this case the hero organization that everyone's connected with at the start of the campaign mm. yeah i don't know that i necessarily accept that in every campaign or every game there is the expectation that you're going to walk away from your job yes all right if you're running something like masks where you're going to drop everything and run around the world to try to save humanity, then that's fine. But I think in a lot of campaigns, the hook is your job. So if you think about Beyond the Mountains of Madness, for example, the characters there are mm. acting very much in professional roles. Yeah, yeah. Although they also can come from any profession, pretty much, because as long as Starkweather and Moore can argue, can we get money out of this person, they will take you on board. Well, as with your artist character in Walker in the Waste, I was surprised that you recall he was an artist because like doesn't seem a particularly likely character to have there but i can kind of see it would fit well it was kind of an artist stroke photographer because he was there to document all the finds that the, mm. the scientific team found things like oh well are we going to find the franklin expedition ship here we'll get a, an artist rendition of it of course right he needs to be killed straight away we don't want any of that stuff recorded hey i survived all the way through to the <laughs> end the of that campaign <laughs> i'm not arguing that it always is dispensed with but i'm sort of saying that quite often i think it is dispensed with i think that's very much the case in call of cthulhu and it's a core expectation like you say particularly the big published campaigns but i don't know i mean sometimes i really want that to feature more in the game and mm. as i said i think as we go along and expand upon this that we'll look into more how that might 
end up actually creating a strong backbone for a game. It'd be good to do a campaign that's set on a very local scene so that it is very much integral Mm. to your everyday life and it's something you have to maintain. That would be a, if anything, quite a refreshing, different approach to take to playing a campaign. Mm. Yeah, I think it's partly because the early Call of Cthulhu campaigns which set the template were these globetrotting affairs, I mean, things like masks and shadows of Yogg-Sothoth and I think the fungi from Yogoth as well, mm-hmm. took place in locales all around the world. So yes, it makes sense that you have characters who travel around. But if a campaign is located just in one place, then yeah, there's no reason why the character has to stop being a mortician or a lumberjack or whatever. Mm-hmm. Mm. So mechanically... Is the occupation just the character's job, or does it mean more than that, well, both mechanically and in terms of defining the character during the creation process? I'd say it's a bit more than that. It's not just that it gives you a load of skills that you can assign from, but it also gives you almost like an expectation of what your social life might be. Things like you've got a lawyer who might be well-connected with people in local law enforcement or at least in the judiciary system or the upper echelons of society. Likewise, anyone that works at Town Hall might have such contacts. But then you have someone like an author, perhaps, or someone who's in an academic environment would have contacts in universities, schools, and so on. So it kind of helps set the kind of the contacts you have in the wider society that you can draw upon and almost then the, the socially accepted or the socially expected even activities that they will get up to yeah i think that's that's great i think it really defines the context of your character often we are looking at what we think of as a stereotypical accountant for example typically accountancy a serious profession relatively well paid quite hard working they're probably going to be doing quite a lot of hours maybe retiring relatively young in life perhaps if they're doing well and people tend to move in their circle don't they they tend to move with peers from the same kind of profession as themselves or at least the same sort of economic group as themselves or related professions Mm, yeah that can lead to some fairly unusual things like characters in law enforcement maybe have criminal contacts because they're mm. people they've arrested who've gone straight or who've acted as informers or maybe even had antagonistic relationships with but there's some kind of grudging mutual respect. And what if you're a corrupt mm. representative of that occupation? You're a lawyer, but you're a lawyer who works for a drug dealer. So you have to keep up a professional face, but you know you know that you're taking money from criminals. Likewise, going back to the accountant, they could be doing a similar thing, laundering money and helping with that sort of processes. Equally, I can remember playing a cop in a game a long time ago, and this is how much this dates this game. The GM tried to tell me I couldn't do certain things, certain bad things, because I was a cop. And I was like, hold on. <laughs> Surely I've got free will. I can do bad things if I want. If I'm found out, maybe I get prosecuted, but it's up to me what I do, isn't it? Mm. So it it doesn't really constrain you necessarily. I remember playing a cop in one of your games, Paul, and I shot someone in the face. (laughs) So you can definitely get away with that stuff. (laughs) I think with things that have happened in America that have come to the fore over the last year that have been going on for you know decades, it's really changed how Certainly people in America, gamers in America, look at playing cops. Mm. So uh, that's a kind of whole other topic that I don't want to, yeah. you know, that would open up a massive wormhole here. So I'm going to avoid that one. <laughs> and of course, the other thing that is defined by the profession is what kind of income level they might have. Mm, very much so. Going back to your example about accountancy and finance. Yeah, I fucking wish I could retire early. Grumble, grumble. <laughs> <laughs> Credit rating is defined as part of the profession, that you have a range of credit ratings. Mm. So we have certain expectations in Call of Cthulhu that certain professions are going to be much better paid than others. Certain character backgrounds like dilettantes may have large amounts of inherited wealth. With dilettante, it's kind of integral to that character. That's what they're about, is having a lot of wealth and Mm. connections and so on. Whereas the other professions... Some of them have got a really broad range. Like artists, they could be multimillionaires or they could be penniless artists, right? Whereas we've been using accountant as a reference point. Accountant, if they're in employment, then they're going to be 
on at least a reasonable salary. They're not going to be on minimum wage, I'm assuming. In the book, we've kind of got brackets for the various professions. They're a bit arbitrary. Also, we do include advice that if the player wants to play a richer or a poorer version of that profession, talk to the keeper and negotiate it. These are representative figures, sort of income credit rating brackets. Yeah, I think that's an important point because let's say you are playing a private detective Private detectives are moderately well-paid, but they're not going to be rich. But let's say that your character background is that they do come from inherited wealth, but you don't want to create a dilettante character. Then I think that ability to go outside those boundaries to negotiate that. Or maybe you're playing a private detective and they've just been through a really bad divorce and they're paying huge amounts of alimony and they've lost their house and stuff like that and are absolutely penniless. You might want to put them below the bracket. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I can almost hear the film noir saxophone music playing now. Mm. (laughs) In the previous editions, credit rating had a bit of a different meaning as well. It was more about your social influence. And I think in some contexts, credit rating still has that bearing, particularly in the modern day. Your wealth still buys you access to contacts and influence. But credit rating in 7th edition is more about wealth. It's rare, I think, certainly these days, perhaps less rare in the 1920s, for one person to have the same career throughout their life. People now, much more, I think, do move around, sometimes between professions. They may, at some point in life, retrain to do something else. Yeah, I mean, I guess even in the 1920s, that did happen sometimes. Hmm. How do we handle that in the game? If we've got someone who, say, was an accountant for many years and decided that they really wanted to be a private detective and change career and did that. Paul, how do you multi-class in Call of Cthulhu? <laughs> well, you take a level of accountancy and then you take a level... No. So there are experience packages so if you had something really significant and formative in your life i think like having served in the war Mm -hmm. i've never done that but i I get the the impression that that will have a big impact on a a person's life in terms of their experience and their worldview and and their skills so you can take off the top of my head i can't remember the exact terminology but a soldier package or a war package and that adds to your skills but there's some pros and cons to it so you may have a cost in sanity or perhaps war wounds or something like that but you do get additional skills Mm. and experience not quite as horrific as the war package in green and pleasant land that ended up with you being a super stellar hard-ass investigator at the beginning of character gen for horror on the orient express and then being almost a paraplegic by the end of character gen if i remember right (laughs) yeah because i'd been in gas attacks (laughs) it was almost like you know stereotypical traveler character creation where you die during character creation i barely survived (laughs) but it was good it informed my character it was great it was great i did a lot of color to the character but i think you know if you have just changed jobs so you know you used to be a school teacher and then you stop doing that you're unemployed for a while and you go into banking or something i don't know Mm. you know you have a, a change of career It's a tricky one. I think generally you go with what the dominant profession is. One possibility that occurs to me is you could effectively create a custom profession and agree with the keeper that my character is, say, they were a teacher, but they're now a lounge singer. And as a result, they've got some of the skills from being a teacher that they still remember, Mm. but these new ones they developed. So these are the skills out of the eight that I want to put in this package. Are you okay with that? I would have to put a custom skill in there for that particular one that says, get embarrassed when former pupils walk into the bar 50%. (laughs) (laughs) I've always thought of it when you have that jumping ship into a different occupation that part of your personal interest skills can be used here to help flesh out Mm. other skill points that you would have had. Mm. And using that example of like, I'm a teacher now, but I used to be an accountant. Well, if I've got a 20% in accountancy, I think you can probably work out how that they left that occupation, that maybe it was not an (laughs) amicable split or that the opposite way around. I used to be an accountant, now I'm a teacher. I was a really great accountant with 70 accountancy and I've got bugger all in teaching skills because I've only just started out. Yeah, yeah. One thing that Call of Cthulhu as well pins down in the occupation section is 
well, particularly with the modern era, which occupations are particularly appropriate to which eras? I want my 1920s hacker to have a load of computer use. (laughs) Well, I mean, that's an interesting one because in Pop Cthulhu, we do actually have a computer Mm. use for the 1930s. And I guess if you wanted to colour outside the lines a bit, you could potentially play someone like Charles Babbage or Ada Lovelace in a Gaslight game Mm. and actually have a computer use skill. So I guess what I'm saying is that these definitions aren't always quite as rigid as they seem. That said, if you're playing, say, a Dark Ages game or something like that, you're going to have to work very, very hard to put computer use in there. Yeah. You could potentially wrangle electrical repair, be a very uh, (laughs) proto-Frankenstein so, because he was <laughs> lots of lightning rods. A lot of the occupations do cross over the various mm. eras. I mean, most of the ones we've talked about, aside from ones that key into technology, a lot of the occupations of the 1920s and the modern day cross over, I would say. I mean, they're redefined to some degree, but your accountant, your lawyer, your police officer, your private detective, your librarian, you know, from Victorian times onward, those roles, they've changed, but they're recognisable. There may be some professions that become less common over time as Mm. well, but they never really die out because, I mean, if you think about professions like, I don't know, Fletchers and Coopers, so craftsmen who make particular items that Mm. these days may be mass manufactured that you wouldn't necessarily go out and try to find a classic Cooper to make a barrel for you. On the other hand, there's always this sort of artisanal part of the community that does hang on to the old skills and make things the old-fashioned way. So if you're playing a modern-day campaign, you could still potentially have someone who, who does make barrels or you know, skills that come back like brewing or candle making or whatever because they are mm. now serving a very particular community. So that's how you could get your haberdasher campaign idea finally working. If you set it in the modern day, <laughs> they've got so much time on their hands, they can just drop the day job and go out and <laughs> go gallivanting <laughs> off around the world. <laughs> or, or they're just like Renaissance fair players, you know, yeah. or uh, you know, larpers and so on, making costumes and all that. You know, cosplayers yeah. making fletching arrows for effect. Now, there's <laughs> something you should have put in the occupation list: larper. Oh. So I was having a quick flick through it. There's only really two in there that I can see that are definitively specified as modern occupations. What are those? A computer programmer, technician, hacker. They're all lumped into one. And the other one, which is one that I would really like to give a go at some point, deprogrammer. Mm. Well, deprogrammer is an interesting one because that is from a very particular bit of history and the deprogramming has now gone out of fashion because, well, A... A lot of deprogrammers got sued, basically, because what they were doing was illegal. Not just sued, but arrested, because they were kidnapping people and pretty much torturing them. And also, there is the dirty little secret that came out, which is fundamentally deprogramming doesn't work. Mm. So as a result, there were deprogrammers, say, throughout the 70s and maybe the early 80s. But as a profession, I'd argue that it's not a modern one. hasn't been for you know, 30, 40 years. And for context, mm. folks, go back and have a look at our multi-part episode on cults. Mm. So do you think there are any particular professions that, if a player chooses them, make the game tricky for the GM? I think it very much depends on the scenario. So you may say, okay, well, this scenario, it takes place in a small town. The police are going to investigate a case and it's going to involve the mortuary and so on. And the players might be playing a a mortician and a a private detective, something like that. And their roles would integrate into it. But you've kind of briefed them up front. In which case, playing the, I don't know, the Fletcher and the, I'm just looking down the list, the hacker, well, I mean, you could probably, you can kind of leave most professions in. Mm. I don't know. I guess the question like you asked is, are there any that would cause a particular problem? The ones that occurred to me 
were possibly it's mitigated somewhat if you're playing a globe-trotting campaign. But if you've got a profession like, say, pilot or sailor or something like that, mm. where it's very, very focused, your skills are in operating a vehicle that you're going to be using for comparatively little of the campaign, mm. then, yeah, okay, you're playing this ace pilot you get your great scene where you get to fly the other player characters from A to B. Maybe there's a storm en route that you have to battle through in this exciting scene and so on. Then you get to the other end and everyone else is investigating and doing cool stuff and you're standing around being a pilot without a plane. Mm -hmm. But I mean, pilot is one of your skills, one of eight professional skills. And then you've got your personal interest skills as well. Yeah, you're probably not going to get to use your pilot skill very much. Same as an engineer isn't going to get to use engineering very often or an entertainer. If they've got the art of playing an instrument or something like that, it's very rarely going to come in. But it, to some degree, it just informs their character, I think. Just to jump games a little bit, we've got in Rivers of London, player characters are going to be police officers quite often. That's going to be quite a common profession in the default game and we made it such that law is a required skill but how often are you actually going to use law in the game yeah as a skill as a skill role probably not that often mm. so is it a bit of a, a burden having to take that as your primary skill but we figured well it's kind of a cost of buying the police officer occupation and being a police officer grants you a lot of access in the game that isn't actually a skill role, but you can show your warrant card and get into places or get people to do what you want. So by buying that skill, it's not something you're necessarily going to use very much, but the permission it grants your character is useful. Yeah, I don't think that stands up for pilot necessarily. No, but it does raise the point that with some of these less common skills that, yes, all right, you don't get to roll on them very often. But when you do, it can be really fucking important. And I'm reminded of a point in one of the campaigns we worked on where there is potentially a really vital pilot boat roll that the characters might have to make. And no one ever takes that skill. No one. And the default <laughs> is zero one. So if you are playing a sailor and you actually have pilot boat roll and you're in that campaign and that scene comes up, this is your chance to shine. Otherwise, you have that fantastic scene of everyone running around in a panic saying, who knows how to pilot a fucking boat? I don't know. Oh, no. <laughs> Similar to why I put having art craft as a, the only role that can save your life in one of my scenarios. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I've written one where the most useful skill in the entire scenario is psychoanalysis, mm. which no one ever oh. takes. The one skill that pretty much is a sink for points and only used in downtime. Mm. Uh, this is what luck points are for. <laughs> <laughs> I can't pilot a boat, but I can be lucky. <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea what all these dials and, you know, <laughs> I'm in a 737, going to land it. No idea. Never flown one before. Spend some luck points. Fly, yes. <laughs> land, no. <laughs> yeah but speaking of professions that might cause problems there are a number of the occupations in call of cthulhu which are very much investigative occupations like private detective and mm. police officer and so on people who are used to going out and hunting down information even academics and archaeologists and so on they are people who investigate mm. but there are an awful lot of people who don't typically. So let's say you're playing a lumberjack. So why would a lumberjack investigate the Cthulhu mythos? How do you take a profession like that and turn it into an investigator? I could use it in amidst the ancient trees. Mm. If you've got someone who knows the area and knows the woods that you're going out into, then that seems like a great fit. That is someone with knowledge of the local area that can be put to use. But it's very dependent on the story as to whether they can fit in. I've got a, not a bugbear, but I always have a bit of a cringe or worry when anyone chooses the likes of butler, valet, or maid, mm. that unless another player character is your boss and your boss is actively out on the investigation, why the hell are you being let out the house to do anything other than polish boots and do your job? Yeah, actually, one of my favourite characters that I've played was actually a valet. It was when we were 
playing The Curse of Seven, and Lynn Hardy was playing this former spy, and I was playing her manservant, who was basically just this hired thug who every now and then cooked breakfast for her. It was great. Yeah, I'd lay out the shoes, I'd make breakfast, I'd make sure everything was clean, and then I'd go and punch someone's teeth out for her. And yeah, I had a great time. It's your percussive investigator, isn't it? Yes, punch yep. him until the clues fall out. <laughs> I mean, I think this is where the, you're getting the premise of the scenarios sort of helps. Mm. You're not told what it's about, but you're given some context and then you can create a, an occupation that would sort of fit. So I can see, yeah. yes, if you said, oh, we're going to play Call of Cthulhu, I've no idea what the game is, I'll create a lumberjack. Well, that could be tricky. But if you say, you know, it's going to be set in the woods, some, some old guy's gone disappeared down in Vernon's woods. Well, okay, well, I'll be a lumberjack. Old man Henderson out in his cabin. Yeah. And I guess that works really well if you're playing a campaign, a written campaign that's got continuity through it, or if you're creating a character for a specific scenario. But I know a lot of people do basically take disparate published Call of Cthulhu scenarios and basically string them into campaigns. I mean, I certainly did when I was younger. I wouldn't do that now. But when I'm reading places like Reddit, I see lots of mm. people doing that even these days. I don't know how well that works then, because if you do have this character who is a lumberjack, you've joined up for this investigation that's taking place in the woods and it's absolutely perfect there. And then the next scenario that the keeper decides they want to run takes place on an ocean liner. And it's sort of, okay, well, I guess my lumberjack's on a cruise then. I mean, uh, how does that work? <laughs> There are some campaigns that have exactly that problem as well, mm. not just disparate scenarios. I think you have to put it in the players' hands, really, to come up with a rationale. I think we did this with Master and Alathtep. Again, I can't actually remember what my character's profession was before we started globetrotting, Matt. But I can remember, I think we'd already played through Escape from Innsmouth yeah. with the same characters. Then it became, well, we already knew. We knew a bit about the campaign. We were going to be expected to leave America and travel to another country as part of the campaign. And I can remember just talking to you and sort of saying, okay, well, let's just put things on hold for a minute. Why would our characters do this? And we just came up with a rationale. You know, we'd seen that some of the horrors that were threatening humanity and nobody else was taking any notice. It was down to us. So we left our professions behind and went off on on a crusade really a personal crusade you know harking back to that program don't fuck with cats was it called yeah the main person in that documentary worked on technology in a, a casino yeah and yes yeah, she didn't leave her job but if she had wanted to go off and actually follow this case like a call of cthulhu investigator would do she'd have had to leave her job or take extended leave or something i don't know if i'm answering the question there but I think, mm. yeah, sometimes you just got to come up with a rationale for yourself that makes sense to you. Yeah, if we go out and save the world, we can always charge Project Covenant with a bill afterwards. Mm. And sometimes it just comes down to willful suspension of disbelief. Mm. You accept the fact that you're playing a game and that you want to carry on playing this character because you like them. Then it's just going to be the case that they're now going to be on this ship and find some rationale like you say for doing so and there's always the option retire that character or put it to one side for a bit create a new character that's an option too you don't have to stick with that character sort of flipping this whole situation on its head then as keepers how much do we try to tailor the game to the professions the characters have chosen if it's writing a game from scratch and you're not using a pre-published campaign, it's definitely easier. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's nice that each character then has their time to shine because otherwise you're kind of letting them have an occupation and it's like they're saying, oh, great, my moment's coming and it never comes and it's a bit of a letdown. Otherwise, if you were saying, well, I'm going to run this particular style of game, these are the best occupations that really fit it. And then you kind of not restrict the list, but suggest these are the ones that are going to have more of an impact, then you're avoiding that kind of problem that they've selected something that's completely disharmonious with how the rest of the game you envision is going to go. Mm. Going back to the idea of someone wanting to play a pilot, let's say that you're running a scenario, a published scenario or campaign that does largely take place in one geographical area or maybe they're travelling by train to a nearby town or something like that. And you know this one player just really wants to play a pilot – are you 
then likely to modify that scenario. And I'm thinking that if I were doing that, if they were traveling by train to a nearby town, I'd probably have what they were looking for take place a bit further afield so that pilot actually has a chance to fly the player characters there just so they get that moment. Yeah, again, if you're writing the game, then or be able to modify an existing game if you're running something that's pre-published, then yeah, by all means, do it if you can. But there's going to be certain instances where the narrative just doesn't support being able to do that. Like, for instance, you maybe are playing a pilot, but you're ending up exploring those tunnels underneath the Delamore Mansion. Mm. That's you're not exactly going to be flying around down in the underworld, are you? Mm. And if that's the case, is it our responsibility as keepers to say to the player ahead of time, you might want to create a different character for this game because you've put all your skill points into skills that just aren't going to come up or you've got a character concept that I'm really not going to be able to work into this? Mm. Yeah, by all means, discuss it with the player first. Otherwise, they're just going to get at worst resentful, at uh, best disappointed that they've thrown a whole load of points into something they don't use and everyone else is better at the main core skills than they are that they need to play that game. Actually, I'm going to just uh, look at Pilot as we're choosing that as a, mm. an exemplar of one that can be difficult to fit in. So the skills they get, mm. electrical and mechanical repair. So both those can be pretty useful in a lot of different settings. Navigate, again, as useful as it is to anybody. Operate heavy machine, I mean, maybe not that often. Pilot aircraft, science, astronomy, and any two other skills as personal or era specialities. So... Pilot aircraft, science astronomy, operate heavy machine, those three probably not going to get that much use. Hmm. Sometimes, you know, as with any skill. But certainly electrical repair and mechanical repair, those are yeah. two very useful skills. And they've got the last two, you know, so maybe they pick fast talk, something of that nature, which again has great sort of general usage. Spot hidden because, you know, as a pilot, they've got mm -hmm. to have their wits about them and be very observant. Yeah, even even if they do stick with playing something that seems incongruous, often it's only a minority of their skills that wouldn't come into play. I can see that is a deal to some people that, you know, they've spent skill points on something that isn't going to come into play. Just my personal preference is that doesn't really bother me. Mm. You know, I can well understand it. It does bother other people. I think if it was something like D&D where, let's say, you've picked a spell and you never get to use it. I only get like three spell slots and I've chosen this spell. I've never used it once. What was the point of that? Whereas with Call of Cthulhu, it seems less about those skills that you choose and more about how you play your character and how you interact with the game. And those skills seem to have a play a lesser role in the game to my way of understanding to my experience of the game and there are some spells in call of cthulhu you're glad you never cast if you learn them from a book well indeed <laughs> zooming back a bit from the individual investigator to the entire party when you're inviting players to join a game do you try to get them to choose occupations that are going to work well together or do you just give the players free reign to come up with whatever and then try to find some way of getting those characters to fit together so i'm, I'm thinking for example let's say that you've got one person who decides that they're going to play some Scottish lad, another person who decides that they want to play a tribal member from the Amazon. You've got someone else who's playing an assassin working for mm. some street gang. They all bring their characters to the table, look at you as a keeper, and it's sort of, right, okay, make this work. Yeah, I mean, it definitely happens. I can remember a friend of mine recounting, I think they were going to play, I'm not sure it was Call of Cthulhu or some other game, but it was just like, you know, just generate some just regular people, just regular everyday people like us, a bunch of regular guys. Okay, what are you playing? I'm playing a shopkeeper, you're a teacher, you're an arms dealer. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like people are going to do that shit you've got to get the players to talk to each other and if somebody does pick an unusual profession ask them well how do you see your, that character fitting in and maybe they can come up with a rationale you see that one i can make work because the one arms dealer i knew actually ran a bookshop as a front for it <laughs> so. well there you go <laughs> perfect <laughs> <laughs> 
if you can make it work, you can probably make most of those things work. There's two words that come to mind, apart from the good old phrase, and together they fight crime. <laughs> yeah. The one unifying thing here would be they are all members of the same investigator organisation. Mm-hmm. which is how I've grouped together some very disparate groups. Like when I ran Two-Edged Serpent with Into the Darkness, we had a hell of a motley crew. We had two bounty hunters, a con man, a weird scientist, and a linguist. So, yeah, we had uh, some people that did work together well, some people that didn't work together very, very well. <laughs> <laughs> and the, the unifying thing was they were all members of Caduceus. That's the trick, isn't it? The, mm. the investigator organisations... That's what they're there for, is to bind the player characters together. And as Keeper, you can throw that out and say, okay, you're all part of this organisation. Tell me what professions you are that would be a part of that. That's your link together. I think that's a good way of grouping the characters together, certainly for some scenarios. And even if it's not a formal organisation, having some professional ties between them. So I'm thinking, Mm. for example, of scenarios that tend to, say, centre around the Miskatonic University. So Mm. you might have characters there who are faculty members or students who have reasons to work and investigate together because they are bound by profession. The Miskatonic University in itself there isn't necessarily an investigator organisation, but it is providing that professional glue that binds the characters together. Totally. I'd love to run a game set in the MU. So have all of them that they meet over their common mutual affection over the dog, the guard dog that's stationed in the library. (laughs) Because he's the real hero of the Dunwich Horror. That's who I want to play as a player character. I want a kind of Pugmire, Call of Cthulhu <laughs> mashup. And I'm going to play Armitage's dog because that dog can kill anything. <laughs> it's a good job that that dog didn't end up with Henry Akeley instead. <laughs> <laughs> Just think of the Ithian that's stuck inside that dog going, shit, what do I do now? Yeah. Oh, that is the downside. I hadn't considered the downside of playing a dog. Yeah. <laughs> Welcome to your new home, boy. oh my god it's akely going back to the mechanical side of occupations then if we can't find an occupation that suits us in the list of occupations in the core book or the investigator handbook how do we go about actually creating one pick eight skills that's it (laughs) that's it Pretty much. I mean, you've got your colour text to describe what the job is, what the occupation is, and then pick eight appropriate skills. That's Obviously, there are a few supplementary things, approximate credit rating bracket that you'd fall into. Mm. Beyond that, in Call of Cthulhu, it's story stuff. Who might your contacts be? But that's not a mechanical thing. So it's really down to picking those eight skills. And sometimes I've started games like that. You know, we're going to do the quick fire character generation. Takes about 10 minutes. And as part of that, pick a profession. Okay, what have you chosen? Choose eight skills that sort of match it. Just show me what you've chosen. Yeah, that looks fine. Mm. If everyone is a combat skill, then yeah, maybe not. (laughs) Yeah, well, I think that flexibility is an important thing because I think if you're a new keeper especially and you're less confident about this, there is very much the tendency, as we've discussed in earlier episodes, to look at what's written in the rule book and what's written in the scenario as rigid, that this is what you do. These things are fundamentally suggestions. You can modify them and you probably should. But that said, I mean, yeah, I mean, what you were just saying there about combat skills, I've certainly been in the position before of having players, I mean, this hasn't happened since the 80s, but trying to convince me that, say, an important part of being an accountant is having high combat skills, because of course, you've got to gun, gun around the office to protect yourself against robbers. But obviously, there's a little more to the occupation definition than just those eight skills. I mean, yeah, there's the credit rating band, which... I guess you can just eyeball it and look at what a similar profession might have. Hmm. There's also the idea that the occupational skill points you've got are based on particular stats, education and or appearance. Are there any that are based on any other stats or are those the only two? Pilot has decks, I think, from memory. Yeah, I think some use decks. I can see Pilot uses decks. Bank robber has strength. Yeah, appearance, factors, education, strength for military officer. So various professions. It used to just be education and intelligence, but it felt like 
not all jobs came down to education mm. you know some attributes would play a part in that so we tried to balance that and take the focus off of it being purely about education so if you're creating a new occupation how would you decide what skills to base those occupational skill points on I guess if you're doing the full character creation, the advice would be to look at comparable professions. Otherwise, usually if I'm sitting down at a table and allowing players to improvise or create a new profession, I'm just using the quick fire method. So it doesn't come down to the roots of whether it's education or intelligence. You just get a bunch of preset values that you set to those eight skills. So I'm going to play that arms dealer who has every firearm skill as a checked occupation <laughs> plus credit rating because that's all you need, right? <laughs> and possibly a social skill or two. Mm. Yeah, I imagine it's more about social skills than actually shooting the guns. But Persuade to convince people to buy your stuff and then fast talk to talk yourself out of the shit you're going to get yourself into. Then everything else is firearms. Then, of course, there's the associated professional contacts and so on so how do we modify or adjust or adapt that if it's in a one shot or a short game well, i almost certainly don't deal with them but otherwise where possible if there's an existing npc that's in the pre-written campaign or one that you've already got written into the story that you're creating then they become the connections you can basically say oh yeah you know this person because of this reason and then you you tie them more directly into the story mm. so it gives them that personal hook yeah, that's great advice to kind of retrofit characters that are in the scenario to the player characters. Yeah. And a lot of that is just on the fly, isn't it? You know, they ask, do I know anybody in this town that they've just arrived in? Do I know anybody in, in a particular field? So you can look at their profession and weigh up the probability of them doing so. I had exactly that question asked at me at Contingency that was just on last week. We ran a uh, Delta Green game there that they just rolled into town as a doctor from a place only about an hour or so up the road. Mm. They asked, but look at my stats and abilities. I'm a fairly good doctor. Do I know anyone here? And so, yeah, just said, yeah, you know the guy who works down at the local morgue. Yeah. That gave him quite an inroad into getting a load of info. If he's really good friends with the guy who works in the local morgue, that doesn't suggest he's that good a doctor. <laughs> <laughs> but in terms of thinking about defining the occupation, would you put a lot of thought in ahead of time into the kinds of professional contacts that might have, or would you be more guided by what the players come up with during play? The latter, definitely. Yeah, the latter. All right, then. Moving back to us being players rather than keepers... If we take on the role of a profession that is very much outside our own personal experience, so let's say that we're playing an archaeologist, I don't know anything about archaeology, or a mm. scientist, or whatever, how do we cope with the fact that our characters have got skills, particularly academic or intellectual skills rather than physical skills, that we don't necessarily know how to deploy? That's an easy one. If I'm playing an archaeologist, what would Indy do? <laughs> so it literally just think of, have I seen any character in a film, TV series, or read about in a book that fits that occupation? And ask myself, what would that character do in that kind of circumstance? Is there anything that I can draw upon from seeing those archetypes or those occupations in other fiction that I can use in the game? That's the easiest touchstone I've got. Actually, I think it's not so much about the skills. It's about their everyday mm role in their occupation so i don't really know what an archaeologist does day to day yeah. i mean I, I can have a guess right but i don't from personal experience i don't know directly quite a lot of jobs perhaps do on the day-to-day -day basis yeah. beyond my surface imagination of, of what they are whereas the skills they have if we go back to the pilot obviously they're flying a plane but they're not going to be flying a plane all the time mm. but they do have like mechanical repair electrical repair i know what those skills are and let's just look at the archaeologist. So he's got a praise. So that's assessing the value of items and the materials they're made of and their worth. Archaeology as a skill. So that's a knowledge of archaeological artifacts and processes. History, other language, library use, spot hidden, mechanical repair, navigate, science. So all of those skills, we understand what they do in the game. So I don't think mm. the skills themselves are too much of an issue. And they're pretty useful across a wide range of typical scenarios there. And I think if none of us really know the profession, it's almost easier. Mm. Doctor is one that I sometimes think about. Because I think where we know a lot about a profession, 
we tend to compartmentalize it into different specialisms. Whereas doctor, there's lots of specialisms with being a doctor. You can be a consultant, you can specialize in children, cancer, all sorts of specialisms, right? I don't know much about it, but I know there's lots of specialisms. But in the game, doctor. Mm. So if you don't know much about um, medicine, you're just a doctor. That's fine. You don't really question it. Whereas I can imagine somebody who is a medical specialist, mm. they'd be like, well, what kind of doctor am I? And also, I guess a lot of it depends on the type of game you're playing. That if you're playing a high pop game, then you might be playing a character who is a scientist. Your speciality mm. is science. With, With an, an exclamation mark. mark. Exactly. <laughs> That's fine for a pop game. If you're playing something very down-to-earth and gritty and so on, then you'd probably want to pay more attention to those specialisms. And maybe even do a bit of research as a player ahead of time to try to work out exactly what that profession does. Hmm. So it was one of the things I've been doing with our Cold Fire Within game. I've decided to play a parapsychologist stroke debunker. And since we've been set in New York, I've been buying up books on reported hauntings in New York, trying to find ones that were still being reported or talked about in the time period, so that I've got a bunch of anecdotes that I can fire out in the course of play mm. to suggest, oh, this is the kind of place we might want to go and investigate a haunting, or if we're going slightly further afield, here's wider New York State examples. I tried to do a bit of research as a player. Oh, nice. And also, I guess, is the minutiae of the job go that may be completely academic anyway as you've said if you're playing something like masks you're not really going to be doing your character's day-to-day job anyway so it's going to be the skills rather than their routine that's important yeah i'd be interested to find an occupation that you could actually use throughout the whole of masks that was actively engaging in each <gasps> chapter arms dealer might be a good one hmm. <laughs> <laughs> All right, then. What are our favourite professions to play as players? I love a journalist because it's an excuse to be nosy, dig around truths, ask probing questions and generally piss people off. That's what Matt likes doing, pissing people off. I like that. <laughs> My parallel to that, I guess, would be author because I can imagine being a, an author wanting to find out and research for a new book and that can take you into all sorts of fields so it's very flexible. Beyond that, I'm not sure I've got a... A favourite. I think it, it is nice to play one that is very flexible and you mm. can apply to a lot of different settings. Um, what about you, Scott? Do you have a favourite while I consider further? I've got a few. I, I tend to like playing characters who are shades of grey, but at the same time quite motivated. So I do like playing particularly criminal characters or, or occultist characters. They're always good fun to play, people digging around in forbidden secrets. But my favourite sort of archetype to go back to, which I keep playing in different games, and this is what I was saying when we were talking about cult earlier, my absolute favourite type of character to play is either a cult member or a cult leader particularly. And I've done that in so many different kinds of games. I love playing characters who have small cults, strange beliefs, weird practices, and just get into all sorts of strange trouble as a result. Let me guess, you're playing the prophet of the cult game by chance, are you? Absolutely. What a shock. I do like playing religious characters, characters who are religious. It provides a story arc from where you start off with religious conviction and then you question that and then probably lose it and probably take on a whole new religion as you uh, <laughs> yes. as your character descends through the sanity spiral you know that's a fun one to play you know you can play it as a, a strong conviction at the start so it gives your character something really strong to portray and how essential is choosing that occupation to shaping the character that we end up playing you've given some examples of the kinds of professions you're drawn to but when you set out to play an investigator in a game of Call of Cthulhu and you've decided to play, say, an author, how much is that character then an author or how much do they sort of morph into a more generic Call of Cthulhu investigator? Yeah, I think often it's the latter. It's taken on the role of a Cthulhu investigator because as I think any one of us would, when you're put up against life and death situations, your day-to-day -day job goes out the window and mm. you fill in the role that is needed at that moment yeah you know i think it's a bit like you know we talked about going to about war earlier you know second world war or first world war once you go out there and you're in the battlefield yeah your previous occupation is going to inform what you are but you've got people shooting at you you're in a place of danger and that's 
to some degree paralleled with being a Cthulhu investigator. You're in a place of danger. Your life is in threat. You know, the fact that you were an accountant yesterday isn't so relevant anymore. You're not going to be playing a sniper in a World War II scenario setting and suddenly think about, oh, yeah, I need to work out how much the depreciation was on my tangible fixed assets on the set of accounts I've been putting together. <laughs> it's, it's not going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> it depends how boring it is in the sniper's nest and how long you're waiting for a target. You could be sitting there running through some bookkeeping in your mind just trying to get all this straight. Maybe the keeper might ask you to make an accountancy role in that case just to keep your mind focused and stop you from falling asleep while you're waiting for your target. Yeah, you just start creating spreadsheets and get a point or two of sanity back. <sighs> yeah. <laughs> there you go, Matt. That's just for you, though, Matt. No, not for any other players. Any use of Excel should not ever give you sand back. <laughs> <laughs> and then one final question to wrap all this up. Are there any professions that we as players would never consider playing? Clergy. Oh, you see, I would I would consider playing clergy. I mean, not in real life. But why is that, Matt? Uh, partly my aversion to religion as a person, but also it's one of the hardest that I can try and rationalise getting involved in any scenario. Oh. Because they're people that are intrinsically tied to the church itself. They have a congregation, they have obligations, they are very busy within their local community. It just strikes me as being very hard to play an investigator with all that baggage that they can just suddenly drop it and then go off to be an investigator yeah. if it's something that's in the local area and if it's something that's affecting your congregation then by all means then that's a character that's pretty much specifically written for that scenario but otherwise i just find it incredibly hard to rationalize and also just generally unappealing by its very nature hmm. based on that does a character have to be like you for you to want to play them i've played occupations that i'm nothing at all part of like i'm definitely never going to go into the military but i've played soldiers before Okay. What about you, Scott? Is there any that you would not play? I've played a lot of convention games where I've just been handed a random character and it's played that. And I don't think to date I've ever encountered a character where I thought, you know, no, I really don't want to do that. But I guess one of the occupations in the Call of Cthulhu skill list in the Investigator's Handbook, which always sort of raises an eyebrow with me, is prostitute. I'm not saying that sex workers aren't professionals, that they're not doing proper work and so on, but I'm just thinking that playing a sex worker in a Call of Cthulhu game, unless it was really key to that kind of scenario, I mean, say if it was some kind of really creepy Golalak scenario set around the porn industry or something like that, yeah, then I might be up for that. But I've had bad experiences of... For example, there's a pre-gen that I created for Blackwater Creek, who's actually a lounge singer. I don't know what it is. I've handed her out as characters to a few people at conventions, and there is, seems to be a certain class of male players who, when they get that character, play her in a very creepy, stereotypical way that's sort of very sexual and just really weird, and I really regret that character being at the table. I guess... I'd be worried that in that situation of being given a, a sex worker as a character that, you know, I'd be so caught up in trying not to do that and thinking about how to portray it that I'd be paralysed. Yeah, I did not even notice that was in the book until you said it. I completely skipped over that. Mm. I think it'd be a great one if somebody can play it well, but mm. it is a challenging one to portray, I think. Yeah, I'm not saying that I don't think it should be in the game. I'm just saying that I'd, I'd ever want to play that character myself. How about you then, Paul? Any particular occupations that put you off? Not particularly, no. I, you know, I, I think what you just said is probably true for me as well. I think that would be a challenge. But, you know, looking down the list, I'm not saying I could do a good job of them, but there's none there that sort of leap out at me and really put me off. Because sometimes I do like playing disagreeable characters. So there are professions on that list that I think could probably play as a bit of an arse. <laughs> They should all have an arsehole rating scale from 1 to 10. No, you're thinking of Fatal, Matt. Oh, yeah, that's more of a, a size stat, isn't it? That is the perfect point to leave this discussion, or at least back away carefully. Thank you. Thank you. You're listening to the good friends of Jackson Elias. You can find show notes for this episode at blasphemoustomes.com, where you'll also find all our social media presences. We have T-shirts and other merchandising available at our Redbubble store, if you're enjoying this show, please consider backing us at patreon.com forward slash good friends of Jackson Elias. Thank you for listening.
Well, once again, it is that time in the episode when we would like to say thank you. Thank you, first of all, of course, to you who are listening to this podcast. Thank you for doing so. We appreciate that. Uh, Thank you very much to everyone who has ever backed us at any stage. And thank you to a number of new people who we are going to thank by name. Yes, thank you very much to Aaron Anson Poindexter. Hey, and one I know here. Thanks very much to Roll to Save. So thank you, Ian. And thank you very much to Curtis Dozier. And thanks to Sophie Lee. And thanks to Sam Wyndham. Thank you very much to Michael Kremin. Thanks to Christopher Trevino. And thank you very much to Lewis S. And thank you to Tristan Oberon. And thanks to Joe Monty. And thank you very much to Joachim Wendell. And thank you very much to David Maiden Muller. And thanks to Petter Fornes. And thank you very much to Philip Rossi. And thank you very much to... Oh, we've got a URL to thank here rather than a name. Thank you very much to Katsulu.com. And thanks to Ben Costa. And thanks to Jonah Criswell. And thank you very much to the wonderfully named Cider Drinker. I approve of that name. <laughs> and thanks to Niall Nordmark. And thank you very much to Philip S. Garcia. As usual, let me just say that if we have completely screwed up any of your names, or even mildly screwed up in a way that irritates you, then please do get in touch and we'll try to do better next time. Should we not have like put some more points into pronunciation by now? We've had a lot of practice. I was going to say we've only got 10% in it. So yeah. Yeah. yeah, but you see, Paul, as you rewrote the rules, you should know this. In order to improve, mm. you have to mm. succeed every now and then. Mm, that's true. That's where we're going yeah. wrong. Yeah. Maybe after another 200 episodes, we might have 20%. <laughs> well, we'll just go on being failures. But until next time... It's a goodbye from me. Cheerio from me. And a farewell from me. Hello? BlasphemousTomes.com Am I going to have to cut this from the episode because you're threatening your colleagues again, Matt? (laughs) I will neither confirm nor deny. (laughs) This is not an invitation to go into another fucking Wurzels riff. This is not. Oh, (laughs) now you're talking. Are you ready, Matt? Well, you've got a brand new combo in Irishster. I'm drinking my cider. (laughs) (laughs) I love the fact that you launch into the wrong song then, Matt. (laughs) Pay no attention to the arsehole.